Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that your word teaches us of your dealings with your people throughout history. And we pray that as we look at this uh, passage this morning that you would um, help us to concentrate uh, because it, uh, it's a difficult uh, section of your word. Uh, help us to be enlightened that we would understand it and help us to see the implications for us as Christians as we seek to live with Jesus as our King. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, I wonder if I was to ask you, what are, what are, what are the most important events in the Old Testament? What events would you put on your list? How would you answer that question? During the week, I had the opportunity to ask a number of people uh, that question. And uh, here's what they came up with. They came up with some good answers, such as the creation, the fall of Adam and Eve, uh, Noah and his ark. Who could leave that off their list of the important events of the Old Testament? The call of Abraham by God the exodus from Egypt, and the giving of the Ten Commandments. That's a good list, isn't it? And I wonder if that would be similar to the list that you would write up of the important events of the Old Testament. But friends, there is, a, there is one event in the Old Testament which is very easy to leave off our list of the most important events. And yet it's actually one of the truly big events. Uh, it's an event which is so big that many of the books of the Old Testament are, are devoted to this one event. Um, books such as Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah, uh, Nahum, Habakkuk, uh, Zephaniah, Daniel, and probably some others as well. So what is this event? Uh, and why is this event, which so dominates the Old Testament, uh, the event that we're likely to leave off our list of the most important events in the Old Testament? What is the event and why is it so important? Well, to find out more, a great place to start is today's passage. Now, today we come to the end of actually two series of sermons that we've done on one and two kings over the last couple of years. This is the last sermon on two kings. And it's been, it's been a journey, hasn't it? We've seen the highs and the lows of uh, God's people, Israel. We've seen how great the kingdom of Israel was under the rule of King Solomon. Uh, we've seen how the kingdom was weakened when it split into two and became two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And as we've uh, looked at two kings in particular, we've seen the stories of the various kings that led uh, Israel and Judah. Some of them were good kings, Hezekiah and Josiah, but for most of the kings... What was God's evaluation? They got the thumbs down. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And uh, last week, as we neared the end of two kings, 
we saw that the sun had set on the northern kingdom of Israel, that the army of Assyria had invaded and had taken the people out and exiled them in Assyria. And what we see today is that the picture in the southern kingdom was looking pretty bleak as well. Now, one of the things which we learn from history is that kingdoms come and kingdoms go. That uh, great nations rise up, that great nations fall. That superpowers emerge and superpowers disappear. That's true, isn't it? And, you know, some of us are old enough to have seen that in our own lifetime, aren't we? Uh, And you think back to the second half of last century, that uh, for a major part of the 20th century, uh, the Soviet Union was one of the big superpowers, wasn't it? What happened to the Soviet Union? It's no more. Uh, We're living in the age where we're seeing the emergence of another great superpower on the horizon. What, What nation would that be? That would be China. And the world order is being realigned. We're living through it right now. And it's the same, it was the same in the ancient world. Uh, The superpower at the time when the northern kingdom disappeared was Assyria. But uh, there was always a struggle going on, particularly between Egypt, uh, Assyria and Babylon. And in 609 BC, the Babylonians won a decisive victory against the Assyrians and Assyria ceased to exist. And all of the territory of the Assyrians, including what had been the northern kingdom, uh, Samaria, all of the territory of the Assyrians now came under the rule of Babylon. And so in today's passage, we meet this new world superpower and their king, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, who can tell me what book of the Bible do we learn the most about King Nebuchadnezzar in? The book of? The book of Daniel. We're not looking at the book of Daniel today, but Daniel tells us in detail about the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 tell us all about what Nebuchadnezzar did to the southern kingdom of Judah. So we're going to look at that this morning. Um, there, in some senses, this is a difficult issue. Uh, there is some history involved in it. But I'm going to try to take you through the passage uh, and then to spell out some of the implications for us as Christians. And we're going to look at the passage in two sections. I'm going to start by looking at uh, chapter 24, verses 1 through to 17. If you'd like to have that open in your Bibles on page 281. Now, verses 1 to 17 of chapter 24 tell us the story of two kings of Judah. Uh, The first is named Jehoiakim. We read about him in verses 1 through to 7. He was a son of the great reformer Josiah, but he himself got the thumbs down. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, In verse 1, we learn that the Babylonians invaded the land of Judah and they won, as you'd expect. 
Nebuchadnezzar allowed Jehoiakim to continue on as king. What sort of a king do you think he would be? He'd be a puppet king who now took orders from Babylon. Oh, what we see in verse 1, though, is that he didn't like that. And he rebelled against Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar normally... Nebuchadnezzar would have sent in troops to, to quash the rebellion. But we know from other sources that Nebuchadnezzar's army was quite busy at the time fending off uh, the threat from another would-be superpower, and that was Egypt. And so he didn't send in his troops to quash this rebellion. Instead, we're told that there were raiders from Babylon and from other nations that... Uh, that wreaked havoc in Judah at that time. And some commentators say that at the political level, uh, they may have been mercenaries employed by Nebuchadnezzar just to, uh, to do that job in the absence of his army. So, Jehoiakim, we learned, died, and he was replaced by his son, Jehoiachin. Don't you love those Hebrew names? Uh, some of them same, sound very similar because they contain the name of God uh, in the name itself. And so in verses 8 to 13, with a new king on the throne, Nebuchadnezzar was now in a position to take some decisive action against Judah. Uh, let me read to you chapter 24, verses 10 through to 12. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiakim prisoner. Okay, so... You see what's happened there? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's army has laid siege to Jerusalem. Why would a powerful, strong army lay siege to a city rather than just busting into the city and, and invading it? Why would they do that? Why would they lay siege? Well, yep. They just don't want to wipe it out. They might want to use the city. Yeah, good thought, Lachlan. Good thought. Yep. Any other thoughts? Let me tell you the answer. The answer is that you, you lose less of your own men this way. So the idea is that you surround the city with your army and you cut off entry and exit. Uh, you trap the people within the city and you prevent supplies of uh, water and food from getting in, so that eventually the inhabitants get very hungry and very thirsty. And you know what? Jehoiakim didn't like the idea of that. And so what did he do? He surrendered. He gave up. Didn't take him very long. That's why he was only king for three months. Now here's a uh, small piece of trivia. Do you like trivia? All right, well, some of you don't. <laughs> we know from this account, and also matching it with the Babylonian records, 
the exact day that uh, this siege ended. It was March the 16th, 597 BC. So there you go, next March, on the 16th day of March, you'll be able to remember that the first siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians ended. And what that actually is helpful, the reason I mention that uh, is because it tells us that this is a real event in real history. It's not some sort of a fable. Now, in verses 12 through to 16, having laid siege to the city and Jehoiakim giving up, Nebuchadnezzar did three things. Uh, First of all, he took Jehoiakim as prisoner. Secondly, he ransacked the temple of God. And thirdly, he rounded up all of the top officials and all of the soldiers and all of the tradesmen, about 10,000 people, and he marched them across the desert and, and put them into exile in Babylon. Why would he do that? Well, by doing that, he is basically uh, taking away their leadership, he's taking away their soldiers, and he's taking away their tradesmen who could build things. So that by doing that, Jerusalem is left very weakened, uh, easy con- to control, and less able to fight back. That's the strategy. And then Nebuchadnezzar installed another puppet king named Zedekiah. All right, so what was Zedekiah famous for? There's one thing that makes him stand out in history. You know what it is? He was the very last king of Judah. That's his claim to fame. And that's what chapter 25 is all about. So uh, let's... Uh, have a look at chapter 25 and see what happened. The first thing we, re- we read is that Zedekiah also rebelled against Babylon. And so then Nebuchadnezzar again sent in his troops. And again he laid siege to Jerusalem. But Zedekiah was more stubborn than Jehoiakim. Uh, he didn't just give up. No, He dug in. Uh, He refused to surrender for two years. Imagine that. As the supply of water and food dried up, um, the people who were trapped in the city for two years became desperate. There would have been people dying of hunger and thirst. Uh, We know from other times that this happened in the Bible that people would actually eat their own Children, uh, engage in cannibalism. Uh, That's what a siege does to people in their desperation. Uh, In verse 4, Zedekiah had apparently been able to put together uh, an army of sorts and on a particular day the wall of the city was broken through but this group of soldiers fled and they fled through one of the gates in the night hoping to escape from the Babylonians and there's evidence that uh, many of them did but not Zedekiah not the king let me read to you what happened 
to the king. Uh, chapter 25, verses 5 through to 7. They fled toward the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. Interesting, that, that is where Israel won its first victory on the entry into the land. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. See what they did? They killed Zedekiah's sons before his eyes and then they gouged out his eyes. Why would they do that? The last thing this man ever saw. The lifelong image in his brain, the last thing he ever saw in his life was the slaughter of his own sons. Uh, that was Babylonian justice in the summer of 586 BC. And then in verses uh, 8 to 21, Nebuchadnezzar finished the job. Uh, he sent in the expert destroyer, a man by the name of Nebuzaradan. And Nebuzaradan did four things. First of all, have a look at verse 9. In verse 9, he set fire to the temple of the Lord, to the royal palace and to all of the houses in Jerusalem. Secondly, in verses 13 through to 17, he stole every valuable item in the temple that had not been ransacked in the first siege 11 years earlier. Thirdly, in verses 18 to 21, he rounded up all of the leaders and they were sent off where they were murdered. Fourthly, in verses 11 through to 12, he captured all of the people, not only the people of Jerusalem, but all of the people of the land, and he marched them off. The entire population was marched off to, to exile in Babylon. With the exception of a few farmers who were left behind to work the vineyards and the fields, presumably for, for Nebuchadnezzar and those soldiers that had escaped. The bottom line, verse 21. Verse 21. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. Now this is one of the most profound events uh, in the Old Testament in all of the history of God's dealings with his people. Uh, it is the event that uh, we refer to as the Babylonian exile. It took, it took place in two stages uh, with the first siege and its exile of 10,000 people and the second siege and its exile of the remainder of the population. Um, and if you look at it historically, if you look at it politically, you have to say, well, it's a, 
It's a massive disaster, uh, but it's not all that dissimilar to what happened to other nations around. And so why is it that this event is spiritually so important? Why is it so important spiritually that it really ought to be very high on the list of our list of the top events of the Old Testament? I think in order to understand the significance of the Babylonian exile, uh, we need to go back to, to some very important promises that God had made much earlier. Uh, way back in Genesis, God had made some promises to a nomadic herdsman by the name of Abraham. And he promised Abraham three things. Firstly, he promised Abraham that Abraham's descendants would be a great nation. A great people would flow from the body of Abraham. A nation as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand in the seashore. A people. Secondly, that God would give Abraham's descendants a land in which to dwell. They would possess the whole of the land of Canaan, a land which would flow with milk and honey, would be theirs. And thirdly, they would be a blessing. They would be the nation that would bless all of the other nations. A people, a land, a blessing. Then hundreds of years later, God made some promises to one of Abraham's descendants, King David. Do you remember in 2 Samuel 7, you remember when David said to the Lord, I will build a house for you, a temple. And God said, no, you will not build a temple for your son Solomon will build a temple for me. And what is the significance of the temple? Well, the significance of the temple is that they are now settled in the land. It's now time for a permanent building, not a tent that can be moved about. And that the, the temple symbolises the presence of God amongst his people. God also said to David that you will not build a house for me, I will build a house for you. And by that he wasn't referring to a building made of bricks and mortar. No, he was referring to a dynasty. You know, we sometimes talk about the a line of kings and queens as being a house, like the house of Windsor, for example. And God promised that a descendant of David would sit on the throne of Israel forever that it would be an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that would never end. A people, a land, a blessing, the presence of God amongst his people and a king who would sit on an everlasting throne. But what's happened now in 2 Kings 24 and 25? It's all gone. All of that's been taken away. The temple is in ashes. The temple is rubble. There is no king sitting on an 
on a throne. The king has been blinded and he's living in exile under someone else's rule. And the people, the people are captives, not in their own land. The people are captives in somebody else's land. What has happened to the promises of God? And that is the, de- the spiritual devastation of the Babylonian exile. That the promises of God appear to have failed to be no more. What is more, throughout t- today's passage, we are told that it was God who caused these things to happen. Um, cha- have a look at chapter 24, verse 20, for example. Chapter 4, verse 20, it says, It was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah, and in the end, he thrust them from his presence. Abraham's descendants had swapped God for idols. Abraham's descendants had disregarded his kingly rule over them and followed their own ways. Um, they, they were even putting their trust in the very things that God had given them as a blessing. In Jeremiah, they say, we have the temple of the Lord. We have the temple of the Lord. We have the temple of the Lord. We have the temple. We have the land. We have the priests. We have the blessing. We've, we, we're okay. And God says, no. You might have all of those things, but you don't have me. You've rejected me. And so what, he, what does he do? He takes all of those things away from them. He pulls the carpet out from underneath them. Those things that they trusted in are no more. And he sends them into exile, into a foreign land, so that they might be humbled, so that they might turn back to him. I was in a conversation recently with a a Christian friend who was arguing to me that God never inflicts pain on his children. Uh, That he never does that. He might allow it to happen, but he never actually causes it to happen. I think that's not true. That's not biblical. As a father, he disciplines his children. And that was, in fact, what was happening to Israel. Sent into exile, there were amongst them some Jews who re-evaluated their situation, who considered, why has this happened to us? And come to the conclusion that they really did love God And they wanted to be back in Jerusalem with him, uh, with his temple, in his holy city. Uh, It's symbolised by that uh, song that some of you might know if you lived through the 1970s, you know, Psalm 137, which to a disco beat really misses the profound significance of this. But by the rivers of Babylon we lay down and wept as we remembered Zion. They grieved in exile because they wanted to be back in God's holy city. 
Now, superpowers come and superpowers go. Babylon was at the top of the heap until the Persians emerged. 70 years later, under King Cyrus, the Persians became the dominant world power. And what did they do under the sovereign hand of God? They let the people go. They allowed the Jews to to return, to cross the desert again and to go back and to rebuild God's city, Jerusalem, and the temple of the Lord. And the prophets at the time said that the new temple would be more glorious than the temple that Solomon had built. But it was not grand. We read in the book of Haggai, Haggai says, those of you who are old enough to remember what the old temple looked like, what do you think of this new one? Thumbs down. It wasn't grand. And neither was the nation. It was as if the prophets were pointing to something very, very different indeed. Because after the Persians, the Jews were oppressed by the next superpower that arose, which was the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And he was top dog until along came the Romans. So that by the time you get to the first century AD, that the Jews are living in this insignificant backwater, this outpost of the Roman Empire, oppressed by the Gentiles. And so you've got to ask the question, well, what about the promises of God, of a people, of a land, of a blessing, of an everlasting kingdom? Let's have a look at one of the promises that was made whilst they were in exile. Will you come with me to Isaiah chapter 40 for a moment? Now, Isaiah chapter 40 On page 511, the whole chapter's worth reading, but I'll just read the first five verses. Have you got that? Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 5. Speaking to exiles, God through Isaiah says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places are plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here is the great promise to those living in a foreign land that the exile will be over, that the pathway in the desert will be cleared for them, that they would be able to return to their land. But it speaks to a greater spiritual reality. Because, friends, in our natural state, we are all like Israel. We are all people who have our idols, 
We don't trust and obey God as we should. And in our natural state, we're all in exile because we're all living outside of relationship with God in our natural state. So who is this voice of one calling in the desert? We could go to any one of three Gospels, but let's just go to Mark's Gospel for a moment. Mark chapter 1. Now let me read verses 1 through to 3. Page 707. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptising in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So who is this voice that Isaiah referred to? It is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Who is it that he prepares the way for? Well, it's God. He prepares the way for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, the true Israel. And I don't know if you've thought about this before, but what this actually tells us is that even though the Jews were living back in the land physically, that spiritually they were still in exile. They still had not returned from exile spiritually. Because what is the way that any person returns back to God? It is through Jesus, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And what we see is that, in fact, all of God's promises throughout the Old Testament and all of the history of the Old Testament, all of the promises are actually fulfilled in Jesus. Let me try to flesh that out just briefly for you and then we'll close. Think about the temple. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple. It was rubble, it was ash. But Jesus is the true temple because Jesus is the very presence of God. You cannot have God dwelling amongst you any more clearly than to have God become flesh and make his dwelling amongst you, as John says in chapter 1 of John. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. He is the very presence of God. He is the temple. He is the more glorious temple, the temple that far outstrips the building which Solomon built. The glory of the new temple will exceed the glory of the old. He is also the temple in the sense that by his death, he is the sacrificial lamb of the temple. The one who has paid the penalty for all of our rebellion against God and made the way back to God available for us.
by his resurrection, he is declared to be the king, the king of glory, the king who has defeated the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people, Satan. And he is the king who has secured the land, who has secured the dwelling place, which is not a block of real estate in the Middle East. No, 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 it's far greater than that. It is the heavenly reality. He is the king who rules over his people forever. That's the nature of being a king, isn't it? That you have people who obey you, who, who, who you serve and who live for you. And so then, who are his people? Who are the true Israel? Well, friends, let me close by saying this, that if you are a person who trusts in Jesus Christ, if you trust in his death as the way back to God, then you're no longer living in exile spiritually. And if you obey him as your king, then it is you. You are one of God's people. You belong to God's people. For it is only through Jesus that we can be God's people living in God's place under God's rule forever. Jesus is the fulfilment of every promise and every hope of the Old Testament. The Babylonian exile tells us that it is not the physical land, that it is not the physical temple, and it's certainly not any of those kings, but that each one of us needs, like Israel, to humble ourselves, to repent, and to trust in Jesus as the one who leads us back into relationship with God. Is that you? Have you done that yet? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your working with people throughout history. Uh, Lord, it grieves us to see the rebellion against you of the nation of Israel, but it teaches us of our own spiritual state and our own need to come back to you, to be made right with you through the death and the resurrection of King Jesus on our behalf. We thank you that he is the temple. We thank you for what he's done. And we thank you, Father God, that we, through trusting his, in his death and his resurrection, can be forgiven and indeed can look forward to that heavenly inheritance. We pray for each one of us here, for Father God, perhaps not all of us have made that decision. We pray that you would uh, be helping us to think through these issues and come to a right decision. In Jesus' name, amen.